Good morning, and welcome to Cato's third annual Criminal Justice Conference, Criminal Justice at the Crossroads. I'm Clark Neely. I'm Cato's Vice President for Criminal Justice. I'd like you to welcome all of you to the conference, including those of you who are with us online. Uh, we hope that those of you who are online will participate uh, actively, and you can do that by using our Twitter hashtag, hashtag CatoCJ. Uh, and we hope that you'll uh, feel free to tweet the event and also uh, tweet at us with questions uh, for panelists in, uh, later on in the conference. As I mentioned, the title of the conference is Criminal Justice at a Crossroads, and why do we say that? Well, criminal justice is arguably um, one of the issues on which there is the greatest amount of bipartisan agreement that there is a need for reform. Unfortunately, uh, much of the discussion uh, on either side uh, tends to talk past each other. People on the left have one set of concerns. People on the right sometimes have a different set of concerns. And all too often, they talk past each other in a way that's not productive. And one of the goals of this conference is to bring people together, people of good faith and goodwill, who believe that there is a need for reform in our system and want to work earnestly with other people to achieve that. And certainly, my colleagues and I at Cato uh, fall in that group and uh, is our hope that we can have a good discussion today uh, and that will help us better understand some of the challenges that we face in our criminal justice system and how best to go about addressing those problems. I want to take a step back and just talk very briefly for a moment about criminal justice and what's at stake for all of us. Uh, it is absolutely indispensable for any society to have a well-functioning criminal justice system. There are people who, for whatever reason, behave in an antisocial way that threaten uh, the peace and prosperity and safety of the rest of us. And those people have to be dealt with in some way. They have to be discouraged from engaging in that conduct. And if they persist, sometimes they have to be taken out of society or at least kept away from the peaceful members of society. And that really is the central function of a criminal justice system. It's to ensure the social order um, by encouraging people to conform their behavior to social norms and punish people who don't. Uh, I think that the four hallmarks of a well-functioning criminal justice system are that it be moral and legal, meaning consistent with the Constitution, effective at achieving its stated goals and accountable. And I think one of the things that we'll do today is to look at our criminal justice system and see how it's performing across those uh, four fundamental axes. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the four main panels that we're going to have today. The first one uh, that we'll go into right after my opening remarks is police and the communities they serve. As I mentioned, uh, uh, well-functioning criminal justice system is absolutely indispensable to uh, a prosperous society, and the police are the front line of that criminal justice system. We charge the police with enforcing our criminal laws, and it's a tough job. Uh, and unfortunately, I think it's fair to say that relations between the police and certain communities are as bad in some areas as they have ever been. And, and that's very unfortunate. It's unfortunate for our men and women in law enforcement, and it's unfortunate for members of communities who desperately need effective policing, um, because when the police are not held in high regard <clears throat> by those communities, it makes it much more difficult to do their job. Um, and we might ask some questions about why it is that, that relations have gotten so bad. Um, I think a few points might be the following. Uh, we ask police to enforce laws that, where there doesn't seem to be very much at stake for society. Uh, drug laws, for example, and particularly uh, the sale and possession of marijuana. Um, more than, uh, there, we actually, had, in, in 2015, the last year for which I could find statistics, there were more arrests for marijuana than for violent crimes 
in this country. Um, is that an effective use of police resources? Uh, and and what, is it, what happens when we have police officers in the communities enforcing laws where a significant number of people just don't think there's very much at stake? Obviously, that's going to create tension. Um, there are transparency issues and concerns. We have uh, all kinds of surveillance tools, some of which we know about, some of which we don't know about. Some of you may have seen these strange devices sprouting from police squad cars and wonder what they are. Well, in some jurisdictions, those devices are recording every license plate uh, that comes into view of that police car and sending that information somewhere to be processed somehow. And we don't really know. We don't really know what they're looking at. We don't really know what they're doing with that data. And we don't know how long they're holding on to it. Uh, Another concern is um, stingrays. We had a, a white paper that was written by my former colleague Adam Bates. Stingray is a, a device that is used to spoof cell phones into uh, connecting with the, the, the police-operated uh, stingray device instead of a local cell tower. This enables the police to get certain data uh, from that cell phone. Um, but we don't know exactly what. We don't know when it's used. And what we do know is that there's actually uh, the FBI has come up with a non-disclosure agreement when they loan a stingray or when they allow a local law enforcement agency to use a stingray Stingray device, it often comes along with an obligation to not disclose uh, certain uh, information about how that device works and what they use it for. There have even been instances where local police, uh, or I should say uh, local prosecutors, have dismissed criminal cases against people they believe to be guilty because in order to uh, complete the prosecution, they would need to disclose information about the Stingray, and rather than do that, they dismiss the case. So there are transparency concerns. Um, there are also concerns about uh, the way in which police go about their business, the level of violence that is sometimes used. Um, an extraordinary number of jurisdictions now have SWAT teams. These were created for situations uh, like the shooting in Las Vegas, uh, or there's a hostage situation, or terrorists, or things like that. We don't want our police to be outgunned. That was the reason why SWAT teams were created in, the, in Los Angeles in the 1970s. They're not used by and large for those uh, purposes because they just don't happen all that much. Mostly what SWAT teams are used for today is to serve drug warrants, sometimes on peaceful people in very violent ways. Um, we're getting a taste of what that looks like because increasingly those are recorded. And frankly, to those of us who haven't participated in a raid, and perhaps even to some who have, um, they look quite horrifying sometimes. And it's a very fair question to ask whether they serve a legitimate law enforcement function in all cases. And then finally, we have a number of uh, perverse incentives, um, including one that I am intimately familiar with because I used to litigate civil forfeiture cases at the Institute for Justice. Um, the Institute for Justice wrote a report called Policing for Profit. Uh, and I don't say that that describes all jurisdictions, but I'm absolutely certain that it describes some jurisdictions uh, where because police officers are able to seize uh, property that they believe was involved in a crime somehow, and oftentimes they, the, the department actually gets to keep the proceeds of that seizure, does that warp the incentives of law enforcement? Does it cause them maybe to be more interested in crimes that will yield rich forfeitures as opposed to crimes that might be the most dangerous for our community? These are all fair questions to ask, but we should keep in mind what I said at the beginning, which is the incredibly vital role uh, that our law enforcement officers serve in this country. They are the tip of the spear when it comes to uh, a well-functioning criminal justice system. They deserve our support, um, but in return, we're entitled to transparency and accountability. And I hope we have a good conversation about that today. The next panel we're going to have is the defendant in court. Um, I've been a litigator for uh, over 20 years. Um, I've not been a, a, a criminal attorney, neither a prosecutor nor a criminal defense attorney, um, but I have lots of friends who are. And I have concerns about this area of the law, and I'll just list one of them. 97% um, of all federal criminal convictions are obtained through plea bargain instead of a criminal jury trial. 
We took a system that was literally designed around the concept of a criminal jury trial and virtually eliminated it from our criminal justice system. Ask yourself a question. Could we get the plea bargain rate up to 100% if we tried hard enough? I'll bet we could. We could get pretty close. Would we want to do that? I think not. One of the things that separates the American criminal justice system from most other countries is the centrality of citizen participation in the system, at least according to the design that we were given by the framers. And we've essentially eliminated citizen participation in our criminal justice system by eliminating or virtually eliminating the criminal jury trial. That troubles me greatly. Another area where we're um, very much at a crossroads uh, is criminal justice at the border. Um, I don't have to tell you uh, how much of the national conversation is now being devoted to immigration issues and border issues. Uh, and one of the concerns there is that our borders seem to be marching inside. Uh, there are now these things called interior border checkpoints, uh, where if you're driving uh, in Arizona or in Texas, where I'm from, uh, I actually took a road trip with my family a few months ago through West Texas, and we were uh, required to pull over well inside the interior of the United States and answer questions uh, from, from customs agents about who we were and where we're going. That is not super consistent um, with, uh, with our traditions and our history of, as a free people um, to be forced, without any suspicion, without having done anything wrong, to be forced to stop and account for yourself to law enforcement. <coughs> But it may be a valid, uh, they, may be, they may be enforcing valid law enforcement concerns. It's a discussion that we need to have. Another issue there is that um, federal officials have been enlisting local law enforcement to, uh, to enforce uh, federal immigration laws. And some uh, local law enforcement agencies have gone along with that with great gusto, and others have been quite resistant. That's another conversation that needs to take place. And the last panel will be about drug war and the opioid crisis. We've been fighting the drug war for almost 50 years. Um, there are those who say that the drug war is over and drugs won, and we should move on. Um, we only experimented with alcohol prohibition for 13 years before we threw in the towel on that one. Uh, and we've been, as I said, fighting the drug war for, depending on when you define the beginning, um, for maybe three or four times as long as that. Um, it's no secret that we need to take a hard look at that issue. Uh, but something that's relatively new uh, is, is this opioid crisis, is the people um, accessing drugs that are prescribed by doctors for legitimate medical purposes, and then they find their way uh, into the hands of people who should not be receiving them. And we don't really know what to do about that. Um, probably some of you saw the 60 Minutes episode uh, on Sunday that dealt with this issue, and it set off a huge bombshell. I believe the... Um, <laughs> Uh, President Trump's pick for, for drug czar is now under reconsideration because he was one of the people that um, was accused in that episode of having blocked efforts to reform uh, opioid policy. Uh, and then finally, we're going to have some flash talks about from different uh, authors, and a couple of them are going to uh, focus on sentencing issues. And I think that's an extraordinarily important part of our criminal justice system. Um, we have to be very clear that the punishments that we hand out um, are punishments that we all think are both moral and appropriate. And I think there's real reason to be concerned about whether that's the case. I think most Americans don't really fully appreciate what a severe punishment it is to put somebody in prison. Um, even just the official part of it, the, uh, the part of it that says you lose your liberty, you lose contact with your family, you have somebody ordering you around all day, that's the official part of it. But the way we run our prisons, there's a lot more that comes with it, including a 3 or 4% chance of being a victim of a sexual assault for every year you're in prison, rampant communicable diseases like hepatitis and AIDS, very high chances of being uh, physically assaulted by guards or fellow prisoners. None of that's part of the official punishment, but it all comes with it. And we should be very, very clear um, what we as a people uh, are inflicting on our fellow citizens by way of punishments. 
Um, so I think we um, have a lot to talk about today. And I want to thank you all again for taking the time to be with us. Uh, I hope we can all commit to a civil and hopefully productive discussion as the day goes on. And I want to remind our friends who are with us online to please also participate um, uh, by tweeting at us with the hashtag CatoCJ. Um, and with that, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, John Blanks, who will introduce our first panelists, policing and the communities they serve. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Jonathan Blanks. I'm a research associate here in Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Um, thank you, Clark, for the wonderful introduction. I think this, is, um, this event is a labor of love, and it's a great that so many people are showing up from all spectrums uh, politically and uh, in different professions. Uh, it's my honor to moderate our first panel today, Law Enforcement and Communities They Serve. In putting this panel together, I wanted to get law enforcement feedback uh, about what's going on, the future of reform, what it's going to look like. Um, some talking heads like to make reductionist complaints about black-on-black -black crime or condone otherwise constitutionally dubious uh, policing methods uh, in order, in the name of uh, public safety or national security. These arguments shift the policy burden from police back onto the people that lodge complaints about what police are doing in their communities. And I think that's completely backwards. As a public policy matter, we should be shaping the institutions that are supposed to be responsive to the public, not shape the public to respond better to institutions. And uh, to that end, I want to introduce our esteemed panelists to talk about police community relationships, uh, how to make those relationships better, and uh, each of our panelists has extensive policing experience and has worked with officers both within their own organizations and uh, across the country. Um, I won't read the biographies that you should have in hand, uh, but I will introduce them to you briefly to tell you so that they can tell you a little bit about themselves, their organizations, and how they're working to improve policing uh, in their respective roles. After that, we'll start the conversation for about 45 minutes. And we'll start off in sort of broad policy strokes to get definitions down and then get further into policy after that. Then we'll open it up to the floor for Q&A. Um, up first is uh, Chief uh, Thomas Manger of Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, he started his career in Fairfax County, Virginia, where he rose through the ranks to be a chief. Uh, chief Manger also serves as president of the Major City Chiefs Association. Uh, next up is Chief Ron Davis. He's a principal consultant of 21st Century Policing Strategies, LLC. He's a 20-year veteran of the Oakland, uh, California Police Department and served uh, eight years as chief of East Palo Alto, California. He last visited Cato uh, for our last conference, uh, I mean, for our conference two years ago when he was head of the community-oriented policing services in the Obama administration's Department of Justice. We're very glad to have him back. And finally, we have Sergeant Renee Mitchell, a 19-year veteran of the Sacramento Police Department. She is here representing the nonprofit organization she started, the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Uh, Chief Major, if you would please start us off. Sure. Um, well, thank you for inviting me here. Um, I, I, just with the opening remarks, I just wanted to I just wanted to respond to like just everything that you said. <laughs> I agree with much of it. I disagree with some of it. Um, but people form their opinions about police, and I'm guessing much of the the um, much of the opinions are, and. and that you have formed is through research. Not everybody does that kind of research. In fact, most people form their opinions about the police um, through their personal experience. And that's not only what they've had, her, had firsthand, but what their friends, their family tells them about the experience that they've had with police. 
And so I just say that because I want to preface my remarks by saying that I've been a cop for 40 years. This is my 40th year. I started when I was 12, so you can do the math. Um, and, but 40 years of being a po police officer, I have formed opinions about police. Um, I have seen this profession evolve <laughs> immensely. Um, starting in, in uh, uh, 1976 um, and uh, working for two large departments in, in the Washington, uh, D.C. area, um, I, have, I have learned the damage that bad cops can do, uh, that can do to individuals, they can do to families, they can do to communities, the damage that bad cops do to our profession. Um, I've also learned that uh, most cops, the overwhelming majority of cops, are honest, caring, courageous people who go to work every day wanting to do good. Um, I know that a few bad cops can impact the culture of a police department. Um, and I've also learned over the last 40 years, especially 19 years of it being a police chief, um, that uh, people really care less about crime statistics. If I was here to tell you, oh, crime went down 2%, you care less about that than how you think you're treated by your police in your community. People really care more about how they're treated by the police than crime statistics. So I think, and this is, this is where I'm sure that many of you will disagree with me, but I'm telling you, I'm coming from uh, my, my personal experience of 40 years of being a cop. Between the press, the social media, um, since, since I think it's really, uh, uh, Ferguson was a, a real um, a watershed moment uh, for our profession, um, between the press and social media, much of the American public is convinced that there's an epidemic of police violence going on in this country. And I will tell you that nothing is further from the truth. There is less use of force today than there was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and certainly 40 years ago when I started. There's much more accountability today for that use of force. Problem is, is that we're seeing it. Um, you know, when uh, somebody got roughed up, um, you know, 40 years ago, if you weren't standing in the, in the shadows watching, uh, nobody saw it. It was invisible. And even if somebody complained, it was invisible. Now, every time my cops make an arrest, this is what they see. You got, you got four or five people pointing their phones at them. They're waiting for us to do something that they can, uh, that they can put on YouTube to show how bad the police are. And unfortunately, there's enough knuckleheaded policemen out there, police officers out there, that, um, that we, we keep the narrative going. And unfortunately, it has, it has painted our profession with a broad brush um, to the disservice of the vast majority of men and women who, who do this job. Um, I will tell you that um, as a police chief, um, I have three main responsibilities. First, we need to hire the right people in the first place. And can I tell you that we're doing a much better job today at hiring people that are suited to be police officers than we did 40 years ago. Um, I, I look at some of the qualifications, some of the, th the things that, that, that people required 40 years ago, um, and I look at how, how little they, they uh, meant to the suitability of an individual to be a police officer. I look at the, what we look, the characteristics we're looking for today. I mean, I, I, I can train someone how to be a police officer. I can't train them to have empathy. I can't train them to have integrity. I can't um, train them to have a spirit for public service. So I look for people that have those things, have those traits, and then I'll train them to be a police officer. So we're doing a much better job at, at training people to be a police officer or, or uh, at, at hiring people uh, to be police officers. Then we have to invest in their training, and that is a career-long uh, 
project, a relentless pursuit to best train our police officers. And, uh, you know, and I look at the training we're doing with crisis intervention, dealing with uh, folks with mental health issues, with addiction issues, de-escalation of situations. Um, all those things, are, uh, I think, have really improved our profession. And were, were some of us forced to get into that because we got in trouble? Absolutely. And, but it's, it's the best thing. And a lot of us have, said, have learned by others' mistakes, and our training today is better than it's ever been. And then uh, accountability. Absolutely, it's my job to hold my cops accountable for what they do and how they do it. And, and that accountability, by the way, starts with me. Um, and there's, there's been accountability measures that have been put in place over the years that I think have, have increased our transparency, has, have held us more accountable. Um, my cops have been wearing body-worn cameras for a couple of years now. I've been wearing this body-worn camera for a couple of years. Um, and uh, what it has shown um, the public in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I'm the police chief, is just how difficult this job is. I think some people you know, demanded, let's put these cameras on the cops. That way, we'll catch them doing bad. That, that, that's the way we'll hold them accountable. Well, the fact is, what people have seen is that uh, it's just how challenging this job is, just uh, how incredibly uh, talented uh, my cops are. Now, in the past couple of years, have, has this camera helped me fire a couple of cops? Yeah, it's actually helped me fire two cops. Both of them needed to go, needed to be fired. I did not need them wearing this badge, wearing this uniform. I did not need them impacting our profession because of the way they treated people. So it has helped us hold people accountable. But again, I think the, the actions of just a, a, a few officers around the country, high-profile incidents, incidents caught on video so that everybody gets to see it, everybody gets to feel it, and, and just feel the, the emotion uh, uh, when you watch some of these, these, these terrible, uh, tragic events. Um, has helped folks paint police, I think, with a broad brush, and we're trying to work our way out of that because we have to. We have to earn the confidence and trust of the people we serve. If we don't, our job is much more difficult, and we are much less effective. Chief Davis? So, good morning, everyone. Um, something like Tom, I have close to 30 years of law enforcement. Same, th same thing. I started at five, though. Um, <laughs> he keeps calling me a rookie. So I agree with most of what Tom said. I'm going to offer you a different perspective on probably a same, uh, an agreement. Uh, Tom started by, the chief started by talking about the false narrative about police violence. I can accept that as long, but I would put a caveat to it. There's still an unacceptable level of police use of force in this country. Whether it's a false narrative, whether we question to motive, I think there's still something, when we look at the shootings that occur, it's not that I believe that they're either illegal or they're used nefariously or that was a malicious intent. Just many of them are just not necessary. So I'm going to start with two questions that we need to really focus on in policing, in my opinion, and not to take anything from the great work uh, that my colleagues are doing with evidence-based policing, but it's two questions. One is, is the police profession a profession or a vocation? And because we're so decentralized, in many cases we're acting as a vocation. We have not adhered to a national body of standard. We are not adhering to evidence-based practices. We are basically going in 16,000 different directions because there's over 16,000 independent local, state, and tribal law enforcement agencies. We're engaging in practices with no evidence whatsoever and not adopting some basic principles like in the medical profession, do no harm first. So we're accepting collateral damage in the name of statistical crime reduction. And so I am not one to, I agree with the chief about, I think the overwhelming majority of officers do a great job. There's some bad apples. But I, I caution the bad apple argument. What you have are bad systems. And when you have bad systems, bad apples can, act, can operate. But more importantly, good officers can have bad outcomes. 
and then we blame them for those outcomes even though the system has failed them. And I hear quite often when I was in either law enforcement or when I was in the, uh, the Obama administration that the system is failing us. And I'm going to be very candid. We need to talk about some hard truths here. The system didn't fail. It did exactly what it's designed to do. It was designed to do certain things in the 50s and 60s, which was to oppress and contain a certain group of people that we would enforce Jim Crow laws, discriminatory practices, and the police were the arm of that, those policies. And so we develop a system that would then do into mass incarceration. So the system is working. Therefore, we must change the system. And I think when we look at it and to keep putting this on the onus of the officers is, a, I think, is a false narrative because the officers are doing what they, for example, are doing what they're told to do. I see my esteemed colleague, Richard Jerome, in there who's working with the New York Stop and Frisk. The officers will tell you that they were yelling for years, stop, we don't want to do this, stop the quota system. But it was management, it was city leadership, it was elected officials that kept saying, this is what we need to drive this crime down. And so now when there's disparities in stop, question, and frisk, everybody points to the officers and says, you need more training. Well, I actually raised that finger up a little bit, and we need to train leaders, not just law enforcement leaders, elected leaders, the community, about asking for things and wanting things that are counterproductive to a democracy. So I, I just want to take a different idea that we need to take a look at this institution. You started the idea with the institution, and I agree with Jonathan wholeheartedly. We are reversing this thing. It's everything right now is about how to change the narrative for the institution versus the institution changing the perceptions of the community that they're sworn to protect and to serve. And so I, I take a more systemic approach that when we look at policing in this country, we have to accept that systems need to change. We have to accept that most apartments look like they did 50 years ago with regards to their structure, right? In other words, they're going to have operations and investigations. There's exactly the same structure, give or take a few organizational bubbles. And then every time we learn something, every time the sergeant's organization learns something that's evidence-based, instead of changing the system to accommodate that evidence, we just add it on to the existing system. And when you add something on, that's the first thing you take away when budgets get tight, when crime goes up, so therefore, everything that we do that we are advancing on becomes a side program, not the philosophy of the organization. So I, I hope that when we talk about this narrative, whether it's civil asset forfeiture, whether it's police reform, that we take it to about a 20,000 to 50,000 foot level and talk about the systems and recognize that you do have very good men and women that are trying to serve in here. And that the stronger the system, the more likely those few bad, few bad apples will be identified the more likely that they will not be comfortable operating within that system, the more likely that their peers will be the ones that will identify them and reject them, and the more likely that good officers will have the intended outcome of good outcomes. So we just need to make sure we professionalize, and I think we've done, I agree with the chief, we've done a tremendous job since the 30 years, or 35 years now since I was in law enforcement or started, of where we advance from technology to diversity to training. We're, we're making progress probably more than any other institution but our consequences are just so impactful. The other thing I will say in closing is, in law enforcement, we need to, I, I want to make sure the officers understand that they keep using the trigger point of being Ferguson, and I know the chief mentioned this, about sparking this narrative. I think, and I'm going to borrow a phrase from the millennials, and my kids are going to laugh at me, I think Ferguson did nothing more than to awaken, they say, stay woke, the conscious of the country. For, and it's two countries in some cases, two communities, two Americas, for many, especially those that look like me, um, Ferguson did, did not change the narrative, it revealed it. It simply highlighted that which we've already known for many years about the strained relationship between police and communities of color. 
And so when we hear about this, somehow this was some kind of pinnacle moment. Well, it was in a sense that it awoke the country, that it revealed what many people have felt, the perceptions and some things that were reality, and it's forcing us to deal with it. And so now we have this opportunity right in front of us. We have cameras, we have all the stuff to identify that there's a part of this country that feels disconnected, disenfranchised, basically feels overpowered by government in many ways, and we have the ability to change that. My concern right now is the new administration is going in a reverse direction. And instead of looking at systemic reform, they're focusing on basically how to bring a morale up of officers. You want to bring a morale up of officers, give them a safe working environment, understanding the inherent risk of being a cop, give them clear mission and the goals of where they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to proceed, identify for them, number one question we haven't answered yet, what is the role of the police in a democratic society, support them in the work that they do, back them when they make the tough decisions, hold them accountable when they make the wrong decisions, but train them to do the right thing and make them a part of the community, not an external force that comes in to police the community. You will get higher morale. This idea that you somehow, and I'm just gonna be very candid today, that all of you have to genuflect every time I walk by because I'm a cop, we need to stop that, right? The cops that I know, the ones that I grew up with, the ones that are serving, the ones that have put their lives on the line are unsung heroes. We're not high-strung divas, we need to quit acting like it. We need to start recognizing that we're here to serve, not to be served. And I think you play a role in that to make sure we're held accountable for that and not get into this narrative now where I've got my thumb out my mouth every five seconds. They don't like me. Stop. This is, a, this is only, two, was it, 10% can do this job, which means the officers you have are the brightest, the strongest, in many cases have the highest integrity of the people that we chose in our society to serve. I believe they are. I have confidence in them. And we need to treat them like that with dignity and respect. But who give it, when you give a lot of responsibility, comes a lot of accountability. And so we should not hesitate to hold people accountable. But the best way to do that is to change the systems in which they're operating so that they can be successful in partnership with the community, not despite the community. And so I look forward to the discussion. I'll stop there. Sergeant Mitchell. I'm Renee Mitchell, um, and I run the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. And what we are is a nonprofit organization. We're very small. We're a membership organization. So there's about 200 of us so far, and we just began in 2015, but really kicked off just this year um, with our first conference. And it's interesting what you talked about with systems um, in policing, because I always go back to... When I was a young officer, which was, as with 19 years of experience, would make me 10, um, is when I got out in the street, as you'll see from my lovely scars on my knee, I um, blew out my knee in the academy. So I came out of um, on the street on my own three months after my academy mates. And I always tell this story because it was so indicative of how officers are trained and how we learn culture, is I had made a traffic stop and I found a bunch of dope. And this was a couple weeks into my um, being on my own. And while I was there, my sergeant showed up and he called over one of my classmates. And when he called him over, he said, hey, you've been out here for three months. She's been out here two weeks and she found dope. What are you doing? And I thought to myself, oh, I get it. Like, to be a good cop, I've got to go be aggressive, make lots of stops, find dope, and I will get um, recognized as a good cop, especially um, with gender stuff. As a female cop, like, I want to be shown as I'm not scared, I'm aggressive, I'm out there. Um, as you'll see, if you guys read my bio, I go to school for a hobby because I think it's fun to um, take tests and see if I could do better than my classmates. 
And so for me, as I went through my career as a police officer, I started going to school. And it wasn't until I started my PhD at Cambridge and learned about evidence-based policing that I felt like my eyes were completely opened. I realized that I did not know a lot about policing. I did not know a lot about why we did what we did. I know what I was trained to do, and I know that I was good at following my training. But once I learned about how much research there is actually out there on policing, um, both on you know, uh, where crime concentrates, um, prolific offenders, um, domestic violence, I mean, there's a whole um, wide range of research that's been done on policing. And I thought to myself, I think at the point in time I was at 12 years as a cop, I thought, I went to all this school, and how could I not know this stuff? So what we're trying to do, our, our board's a small board, but each one of us have either been educated in evidence-based policing, which is really the idea to use research to drive practice and policy and policing and not rely on tradition or our opinion or our experience. Um, and I look at where we're at in the United States. There are 18,000 different police agencies, but we don't really have a leg to stand on when we say we're doing this type of X, whatever it is. Um, just like the medical profession, and that's what we are based on, is um, Larry Sherman-based evidence-based policing on evidence-based medicine. That's where we are born from, is the idea that if you go into a doctor and he or she suggests certain, um, certain surgeries or certain therapies, you're going to be able to look that up and know that that is an evidence-based practice, practice, whereas with policing, a lot of the things we still do, you can't find anything that says, here's why we're, we're doing what we're doing based on evidence or research. So for me, I've become a, a pain in people's, um, you know what, because when we do things in policing, my first question is, how do we know it works? And if we, if we don't know if it works, like, how can we study it? And one of the things, like, when we talk about the administration, they're talking about bringing D.A.R.E. back um, as an effective intervention for youth. Every time the, the Red Ribbon Week comes in my son's school, I basically get on my soapbox and I tell my husband, I don't want the schools talking to my kid, kids about drugs. I'm like, there's a ton of evidence as, you know, based on D.A.R.E. that we really shouldn't be um, intervening in children's lives and teaching them about drugs. I don't want backfire effects with my kids. I don't want them curious about kids. And if you guys met my youngest one, he's Spicoli. Like, I don't think that kid <laughs> needs to be encouraged. And he's only eight, so I really... You know, I don't want him to be, you know, exposed to it at all. But those are the things that, for us, um, we advocate, we facilitate, and we try to educate um, police officers, police chiefs, um, about what evidence-based policing is. And then we hope to drive the national conversation towards more use of evidence-based practices in policing across the United States. Okay. Um, I, I sense a theme among all of you, and one of the things that keeps coming up is like how we're measuring things. What are, you, you, you talked about, um, you, oh, I'm gonna do bus, I get to do, I, this is what I'm gonna be rewarded for. What are the right metrics, or are there, like, what are your opinions on the right metrics for how we should measure police, instead of, if not arrests or if crime rates, is it, should it be, you know, community feedback? What, what have you found in your work that, that works best? Um. There, there are important things. There's a lot of things you need to measure. I mean, uh, uh, your, your, the confidence of the community is, is a big deal. And, and one of the, I guess, one of the few ways that we have figured out to do that is to put surveys out to the community. And if they come back and say, yeah, we like the police, yeah, we have confidence in the police, yeah, we trust the police, that's good if you've got a, a high rating. We, 
one year we were number two right behind recycling in the county government. So <laughs> we, I thought that was good. Um, so, um, but I, Bill Bratton spoke um, uh, a, a few weeks ago, and I, I, was, I was there, and he talked about the, the best measurement of how effective police are is the absence of crime. And so um, that, that, but how do you measure that? And so I, I, it's, a, it's a great goal to have no crime, uh, but it's, it's tough to measure the absence of, of anything. If, if I can add to that, it's, I agree with it. I'm always add just um, a, another part of it. I think the absence of crime is in part, as long as the second half of that, the absence of crime while you have the presence of justice. And this is kind of a paraphrase of Dr. King about peace. It just can't be the absence of war or absence of crime. It must include the presence of justice, which is to suggest how you get to the absence of crime it matters as much as the absence itself. And I know in talking to this chief and to uh, Bill Bratton, they, they that's embedded in both of those things, so that's a, a very good thing. But I think it goes back to the question I asked you, which is before you get to the measurements, I don't think we've defined what is the role of the police in this democratic society. And as a result of it, we're defining it ourselves, and then once you define it, then you build the measures around what you've said the goal of the organization is. Because one thing police will tell you, like any other profession, is they know you measure with, you, you manage what matters, and you measure what matters. And we have an old phrase, if you expect it, then you need to inspect it. So cops know that if I'm measuring this, that means I care about it as the chief, which means I'm going to comply with it and, and do the thing. So if I'm measuring how many drug arrests you make, then that's telling me that I need to go in that direction to do it. If I'm measuring, as this chief mentioned, community feedback and legitimacy, then I'm going to be focused on that as well. So I think those are all, that, that's great, but I still think we haven't defined that role of the police in a democratic society because if it's crime fighting, then the measurements look different, right, than if it's public service or public safety. If it's public safety, then that includes not just crime fighting, but the presence of justice, which means I'm going to measure the absence of crime. Because I don't think we can step away from that core mission that we have. I agree with Tom 100%. But I'm also going to measure the way you do it because I recognize the only way to do it if you and I are co-producers of public safety. So what you think about me, the trust you have in me, the confidence you place in us together, matters, and so I need to measure that. So I think Tom's, uh, the Chief's 100% right. Survey, feedback, looking at things like litigation, looking at things, the uses of force, going back to the systems. How do you put those internal audit mechanisms in a system that you have the checks and balance with an organization? One thing, let me just end with this before this, uh, my colleague gets in there, is, is we should never forget that the policing industry or the institution is literally the most powerful in the country. It's the only authority, if you think about it, it's the only professional, a government employee, that can make decisions to either deny your freedom by saying, stop, come here, which we minimize greatly in this country. Every time an officer says, stop, come here, this is a democratic society where we embrace freedom. That's a lot of power. And they need to do it. So, and the power to take life on behalf of the government. And so that, that level of violence, that level of necessary uses of force makes it a very powerful, and a system that powerful has to have clear goals and objectives and engage in evidence-based practices and accountability, and so we can't get personal about it when people want to criticize and critique and pull out cameras. That's the whole purpose of the democracy, is that people have the right to push back on a government and ask, whether I'm a 22-year-old cop or a 54-year-old chief, why did that officer pull that trigger? 
if we're not asking that, then we're failing as a, as a country and a community. And the officer has the obligation, obligation to answer it. And I think the more we do that, the more, I think, to Tom's point, you'll see that, unfortunately, and this is very unfortunate as a society, the vast majority are justified, which goes into another problem we have as a society of the violence that we have in our communities and other things that you're alluding to, and that there are some things that we can do to reduce them, better training, de-escalation. But I, I, I just think, unfortunately, we're living in an a, a age where violence is prevalent not just within law enforcement, that's usually responding to the violence, but we're seeing some significant violence in our communities. That's a really good point about that we sometimes create measures and metrics before we really know what we're doing. But if I was going to look at how we're going to determine whether we're doing a good job or not, I know some agencies are looking at, instead of having a comp stat, of having like a community stat. So you're starting to broaden your measures into what does the community want. Um, and when it comes to survey measures, we often know that um, the way I've been taught is the people that usually answer surveys are the stay-at-home moms and the grandmas. Um, it's people that have time, right? Um, or it tends to be like the, the middle class. So I always say that if we're going to try to figure out what the community wants or what the community needs or their perception of us, it's got to be WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? Because I look at my community as a cop that it's really like the same as Jesus's community, right? So my community is the prostitutes, the drug addicts, the homeless, um, the mentally ill. Those are the people that are actually the policing community. And those are the people that we should be asking um, their opinions of the police. And so very few surveys have been done like in the jails um, about arrestees' opinion of um, how they were treated, You know, their view of police legitimacy. Because I think often what we see, um, I think it was, it was Martin Luther King Jr. that said, you know, riots are the voice of the unheard. So to me, like when we're having these protests, when we're having Occupy, when we're having all these things come out in society, it's because of the way we've treated our arrestees. I don't think it's the way we've treated middle class society because middle class society stops a cop and says, hey, do you know where the closest Starbucks is? You guys love us, right? And when there's a homeless person around, you call us and we try to shoo that person away. To me, I think where we've lost our legitimacy is with the arrestees, because not everybody is a criminal forever in their whole entire lives, right? They um, sometimes are in and out of the system, and they age out of the system. They might not be a drug user for their whole entire life. Or they may be a criminal for their whole entire life, but we've treated them so horribly. Their cousins, their aunts, their uncles, all those people now hate law enforcement. So to me, I think when we have to when we think about what we're going to measure, we also have to think about like how we're going to measure those things. Because if we go out to the public, and I think this is what most police agencies have seen with surveys, is it will come back and you will have a high rating for that you're liked. Because it's usually middle class society that's responding to those surveys. Great. Um, that leads actually to something I've, I've been wanting to ask. Um, Julie Ovi, who wrote the wonderful book Ghetto Side, I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. But uh, wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal when her book came out talking about the simultaneous over-policing and under-policing of the black community. And in a nation that is still as segregated as this, this nation is, our, our cities are segregated, that policing looks different, as you said, between like sort of middle class and like the poor and the ghettoized, right? So we think about what the Supreme Court says. And we can't blame police officers for what the Supreme Court says. But you can think of two cases in particular that, that I think are important. You have Terry, um, Terry v. Ohio, 1968. Basically allowed uh, police officers to, to stop, ask someone to stop. Uh, 
check the question them is if they think that there is a crime about to happen and check them for weapons. Just pat down. Not allowed to search their pockets, theoretically. And it, a lot of stuff has moved on from there. And then there's Wren v. United States, which happened in 1996, which allowed police stops uh, to investigate for drug crimes or whatever um, on any, anything, any traffic violation. So if the little light above your license plate is out, they can pull you over and they can look for drugs. Um, I'm, I'm simplifying here. I'm not, I'm not trying to just uh, paint over exactly what they're doing. But this has become something that I think uh, police have been trained to do, as you said. And one of the cases that struck me was out of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals a couple years ago, uh, recently retired Judge Janice Rogers Brown talked about the gun recovery units here in D.C., which like work on the same principles of uh, Ren and Terry. And uh, she talks about this. She never mentions race at all. But she talks about Georgetown, which is a you know, rich, white, posh neighborhood in northwest D.C. and southeast, where it is overwhelmingly black, poor, high unemployment rates. And she wrote, as a thought experiment, try to imagine the scene in Georgetown. Would residents of that neighborhood maintain that there was no pressure to comply if the district's police officers patrolled Prospect Street in tactical gear, questioning each person they encountered about whether or not they were carrying an illegal firearm? Nothing about the gun recovery unit's modus operandi is designed to convey a message that compliance is not required. While viewing such an encounter as consensual is roughly equivalent to, the fi to finding the latest Sasquatch site incredible, I submit to the prevailing orthodoxy, but continue to reject its counterintuitive premise. She goes on to say, with the guise of voluntary consent stripped away, the reality of the district's regime is revealed. It is a rolling roadblock that sweeps up citizens at random and subjects them to un undesired police interactions culminating in a search of their persons and effects. If the Fourth Amendment is intended to offer meaningful protection in the context of Terry stops, the voluntary consent exception cannot be used to engage with members of the public en masse and at random to fabricate articulable suspicions for virtually every citizen, offer every citizen officer's encounter on patrol. What she's describing is separate and unequal policing, I think. And I'm just curious is like, how do we address this when the Supreme Court says it's okay? What, what can we do, what can officers do, what can departments do to recognize the Supreme, just because the Supreme Court says it's all right, they don't have to engage in that. So um, you, you mentioned two out of the three things that get police departments in trouble, pretext stops, um, stop and frisk, and you, what, the one you left out was consent searches. Um, those are the three things that will get police departments in trouble. Um, and the, the way you stay out of trouble is to do those things lawfully. And that's where so many departments get in trouble. Um, stop and frisk is not a crime-fighting strategy. It was an officer safety measure that the courts allowed. And you have to have a certain level of suspicion to stop someone. So. Um, if, if, I, uh, if I get a, a, a call for a, um, a robbery that just occurred at a fast food restaurant and I'm a half a block away and they, and they get a lookout for um, a white male in his 60s, um, you know, uh, balding, uh, wearing a, a, a dark jacket and, and no tie, and I stop that, that gentleman there in the third row, I have, a, I have some reasonable suspicion to believe he may have been involved in a crime and I say, sir, can, you, can I talk to you for a second? Now, he, he, what, I'm being nice and say, can, you, can I talk to you for a second? But he can't say no. I mean, he can say no, but I, I can stop him because I have that reasonable suspicion. Now, I stop him and I say, sir, do you mind if I pat you down? I pat him down, no weapons. Um, 
And then uh, I hear on the radio, hey, we've got the suspect, you know, somewhere else. And I said, sir, thank you. I appreciate it. We, um, you matched the lookout for a robbery. Appreciate your cooperation. Uh, how is he going to feel about that stop? He is not going to like it. And what if he's, what if he's a 17-year-old African-American kid? How's he going to feel about that stop? You know, uh, I, I can tell. But the stop was lawful. It was proper. It was appropriate for, to do. That's, that's the issue. Now, so that's, that's an appropriate stop. What about, you know, this is a bad neighborhood. There's a, there's a Hispanic guy. You know, we got a lot of crime in this neighborhood. Let's stop him and see what he's got. That is not legal. That is what occurs too often. Um, your example, and I'll just finish with this, your example about Georgetown and, and Southeast. Um, let's, you know, I put my cops where crime occurs in my jurisdiction. And if I put up a map of violent crime in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, you, would fee you would see five dark circles where there's all my violent crime occurs. And, if, and, and I will tell you, that's where most of my cops are. That's where our crime fighting takes place, because that's where guns are, that's where the violence is, that's where crimes are being committed, um, and, and that's where people are being victimized. And that's where the public is saying, please, come in here, make my neighborhood safe. So I could flood, um, you know, Poolsville, for those of you that know Montgomery County, I could flood Poolsville with, you know, uh, 50 cops, but they're going to be looking at each other, because there's just not enough activity out there to keep them busy. So, um, so we... It's 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 sort of a, a it's a it's a difficult conundrum for us because I put my cops where the crime is, and that often is where the poverty is, where the the population is the most dense, where people have lower high school graduation rates, where there is less uh, parental influence on some of the young folks. I mean that's just a reality for for many of the high crime areas. And that's often, uh, there's more people of color in those neighborhoods. And so who, who feels like they're getting targeted? Uh, it's, it's a difficult situation. So uh, it's interesting. I, I think the chief just nailed it. But I'm going to have a different perspective on it. That's exactly right about putting, I think two things happen. The fact that the police department has to put the cops where the crime is at, going back to the system, is suggesting that the response to crime is police. And at the same time, the chief identified the underlying, underlying causes of crime. Now, I spent a year as a city manager, so the question would be, if it's a hot spot because of crime, and the only thing you deploy are cops, then what you're telling this carpenter is all you have is a hammer and everything looks like a nail. If you have a low graduation rate, then put some resources in to change that. If you have a high economic rate, then put jobs in there to change that. If you have basically high drug rate, then put addiction services, reentry services, saturated with the kind of things that will build community efficacy and change the outcome. If all you do is put cops out there, then you know what the, the outcome's going to be. And if the cops are not given direction of what to do, then each cop will engage in their own value-based system, whether it's making drug arrests because it's high crime, and you'll have the disparities. Now, it makes sense from a law enforcement point of view. You put the cops on the dots, they engage in the activity, you think, reduces crime. But reverse it for a second. Put yourself in my shoes, and I have three kids, two girls and one boy. My, my son is 20. I'm going to focus on him. If we live in a neighborhood that's high crime, with all due respect, what does that have to do with my 20-year-old son if he's not engaged in that crime? I do not accept that he has to get stopped now in the name of public safety. I do not accept that he has fewer rights now because he looks like he does. 
I have to reject that, and I hope every one of you, including the police, reject that. So if our crime strategy has to rely on putting cops on the dots, then we've already started failing. Because what we're saying to these officers is that we have no responsibility as a community. Everything, officer, is on you. Now, I'm not going to give you the tools to do it, but here's a big-ass hammer. Go to work. And then we come back on, oh, you took a lot of people to jail. You think? That was the response, really back into evidence-based practices and identifying what works. So I don't mind the cops on the dot. What are they doing when they're there? If they, all they're going to do is, is stop people, then you're going to have a negative outcome. If they're going there to get to know people, to be strategic. I'm going back to the medical profession. A scalpel is either something that can save a life, and I'm sure misuse can take a life. So we need to be, we need, these are tools. So I'm not opposed to these decisions. The Ren decision about pretext can be used very effectively and strategically, to Tom's point, when done right. Terry versus Ohio, a stop, it can be done very legally, very professionally, very sparingly if it's part of a larger strategy, but it can't be the strategy of somehow, if I stop enough, that you'll somehow stop crime. And I think that's what the chief is saying. So it's a combination of we're being using the tools appropriate to cause no harm and understanding the law itself. So for example, words matter. Stop and frisk. And some people get in and so put the question, I'm gonna take that out for a second. Stop and frisk sounds like tuck and roll, doesn't it? Stop and frisk, tuck and roll, stop and frisk, which means one must follow the other. It's like one unit of work, stop and frisk. The problem is there are two different standards. And so when we tell our officers that we don't trade them, we don't have the system hold them accountable, mm -hmm. that says now that you must frisk everybody you stop. So which means if I'm jaywalking, you don't have a right to frisk me, but I'm getting frisked anyway. And if I'm now convinced that somehow stop and frisk deters people from carrying guns, I'm now deploying my officers where they have guns, which is a predominantly minority neighborhood based on all the other social injustices, conditions we talked about, then you see the formula being added up, which means now everyone that lives there is now being suspect Everyone that lives there is feeling disconnected and disenfranchised, and we're offering this in the name of public safety. And if you remember my initial idea is that public safety cannot just be the absence of crime, it must include the presence of justice. And so we may have to accept as a society not to put all this pressure on this man right here as the chief of Montgomery County to where the only thing he can do within his framework is to deploy his most valuable assets, his officers, to solve a problem. And we give him no help with that problem. We don't give him the social services. He's probably dealing more with mental health issues than a mental health hospital. I bet you the officers come and engage more with people suffering from mental illness than the professionals that are trained to do it because we have put everything to be default to the police. We, as a community, have to decide that it's not their role, our role as police, to solve some of these problems and f quit forcing the idea that I got to put a thousand cops in this neighborhood to suppress crime. I got two social workers that are, work for the police department that are deployed with my crisis intervention team and, and for the opioid overdoses. So when the person comes out, when we give them Narcan, they come out of their, um, uh, the, you know, uh, they're high. Um, there's a social worker and there's a police officer. And the social worker says, you can go with me. and. She happens to be an attractive woman. That is just a coincidence. <laughs> but she, he says you can go, she says you can go with me or you can go with the officer. And, um, and if the officer looks like me, they're going to pick her, right? <laughs> so, but um, we do that because we know that people with addiction issues, people with mental health issues, incarceration does nothing to help them. Treatment is what they need. So, that, so you're, you're exactly right. What I find interesting about, for me, when I think about our problems that we have in the United States, I always think about 
So I've been a cop for 19 years, and how much research could we have done in the last 19 years to really determine um, how we should be policing out in the field? I've always advocated that if every police agency across the United States that had over 100 cops would do one research project, we would have so much knowledge um, about policing. Because it's actually, we, we know that crime concentrates on specific street segments. So you could have a street segment that's relatively free of crime next door to a street segment that has high crime. Um, so we know it concentrates there. We know it concentrates in prolific offenders. I think the most recent study showed that of the prolific fender, offenders, 15% um, cause like 60% of our crime. And then of those 15%, even a smaller percent causes a bigger amount of crime. I always say I could remember a lot of stuff, but never anything accurately. So make sure you verify all my citations. But there, there's a lot of work. I did my first study. It was on a hotspot study, so where crime concentrates. And we put officers out in the field. And it was just a high visibility. We encouraged them to do some type of proactivity, but we didn't say what type. And we showed that over three months, we dropped part one crimes by 25% and calls for service by 7.7%. And since then, people, well, before me, but people have expanded on hotspot research, looking at what we do out in the field. Um, another captain, he ran a study out in his um, department, and I'm blanking on the department, uh, high visibility versus um, proactivity. And he showed that they got the same amount of crime drop by his officers just being highly visible. He never published on the paper, but he ran his own experiment internally. And then in Portland, we just did a randomized controlled trial trying to see if we could drop crime in crime hotspots using community engagement. And it wasn't successful. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do community engagement, but once you start doing research like that, you start digging down into the weeds and saying, okay, if we did, if crime concentrates and we do community engagement in those areas, why aren't we getting the, the same crime drop if you still get it with um, officer visibility? But to me, it should be iterations of this to, to start learning about what works and what doesn't work in policing. Because I think right now is we have arguments of what we see out in the field. But if we have data to say, look, our money is better spent on mental health issues because here's our problem and here's where we're effective and here's where we're ineffective. Because I agree with the chief is that we cannot just be the answer to the criminal justice um, problem that we have in the United States as cops. Because yeah, not everybody wants a cop showing up. And you also have people that call cops because they have issues with a mentally ill loved one, and we end up shooting and killing them. So th th we're not always the answer. So it should be different. But I think it's always the research and the evidence that we have to move. We, we should be moving at a, at a um, faster pace when it comes to research and policing than we are right now. Can I just give, give one example? We did a study that that just been alluded to when I was in East Palo Alto, with, partnered with UC Berkeley and the California Endowment. And it's the idea of looking at violence through a public health lens versus a criminal lens. And so what we saw was that where there was concentrations of violence, there was also concentration of health disparities with regards to chronic disease rates, childhood obesity, everything. And so we decided to, we, used, we had a technology called ShotSpotter that you can track gunshots in the community. So we basically used, worked with our county health department epidemiologists to, to chart out the two hotspots in the city that had the highest concentration of gunshots. Now, what made this study unique is it won't suffer apathy or encouragement by, by the study. So in other words, if sometimes you engage communities and they like what you're doing, they'll increase their amount of times they call, and therefore you look like you get a false negative or a false positive. This machine will just identify it no matter what. And the first thing we found out is that underreporting was three times the rate. So we would get 500 gun calls, although we would track 1,500 gunshots on the system, so people just stopped calling because 
Why? Because nothing's going to happen. But what we did is we went in there and we started realizing that when people are living in fear of gangs and violence, they don't engage. They don't go outside, the kids can't play, and this all contributes to their health. So instead of doing stop and frisk, we went out there and we opened up the parks. I sent officers to Zumba instructor school. We started doing dancing in the park, taking kids on three-mile bike rides. We bought a bunch of bikes that we would loan them. We just figured that if we were going to saturate the community, then how about we saturate it with the community and see if that was a deterrent to crime. And we saw 40% reductions in gunshots without a single arrest being made <laughs> while kids are out there playing, getting healthier, and they're addressing issues from type 2 diabetes to all kinds of other health disparities. So the idea would be is that, you know, if whoever controls a public space in a community controls the quality of life for people that live there, right? If gangs control it, people live in fear, and they, re they basically go back into their houses and they don't come out. If police con control it, they feel oppressed. The only true owner of that public open space is the community. The police job is to help them regain control of their spot. And I always reject when I hear a police chief say that we got to take something back. It's not yours, right? You can help the community take it back, which means you have to use the kind of strategies that the community still intact once you take it back. Otherwise, it's kind of a scorched earth. So I, I like you said, the hot spots is great, but because we're not yet a perfect system, and because we're not necessarily operating as a profession with a evidence-based coherence to a body of knowledge, you find something like, and this, I hate to say this, but you'll see something like hotspots. If you're lucky, you get a progressive chief like this one, he'll interpret it, do the research, put social services in there, and make it work. But there's 16,000 agencies. Others will say hotspots, zero tolerance, broken windows, zero tolerance. Put those two together, and before you know it, it's off the chain, and we're watching the videos because someone took some research and really exploited or misinterpreted it, plagiarized it, and now, like, broken windows is a perfect theory. Broken windows is a sound theory, which is probably shocking you that I'm saying that. The idea you fix small things before they lead to big things, the only difference is no one said that broken windows was supposed to be zero tolerance or it's supposed to be arrest. It was about ad addressing social conditions. And the guy who wrote it, George Kelling, is yelling and screaming because that wasn't his intent when he wrote it. But it's been, excuse the phrase, bastardized so much that now it's a negative. If you hear zero to uh, broken windows, you got to run from it. So we need to get back to that profession where if we're going to have evidence that we have journals that we can cite work. Could you imagine, and when you're talking about these laws, the laws are meant to be the floor, not the ceiling, right? So if you're a doctor, could you imagine if your doctor says, I'm going to only do just enough not to have malpractice? Or do you want, to, do you want to, your doctor to aim for the floor, or do you want him or her to aim for the ceiling? Or any attorneys in here? My client, look, I defended you right to the point that I'm not going to get disbarred. How about you defend me till I get off? That would be better, so aim for the ceiling. So for cops to say, well, Gardner cases, I can be objectively reasonable in using force, that's the floor. That keeps you from going to prison. The ceiling is that you de-escalate, and if you have a better option, use it. Yes, the other one may be legal, but it's not, it's not necessary, and it doesn't have legitimacy, and it's going to question people, are going to question why we're doing it. So we got to get to that profession where we're shooting for the ceiling in excellence and understanding that laws and case laws are the floor that are, that are ensure that we are held accountable from a criminal statute and a civil liability, not excellence. All right. Thank you so much. Um, I, I spent a couple years looking at police misconduct data. And one thing that I just kept seeing over and over when we're thinking about accountability and legitimacy is the ability to fire bad cops. I, I, I do believe that most cops are, you know, hardworking, trying to do the right thing. I think the incentives are often very wrong. But there are, you know, a percentage, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 10%, depending on the department, that are, you know, shouldn't be out there. And 
chiefs go out and they try and they fire these officers. And they because they're getting sued, they're you know they're costing the city a lot of money. They're you know they're getting they end up leading to the officer-involved shootings that are bad shoots, and then they get acquitted, and the contract or whatever makes you hire them back. You know how how do you deal with that? Should we you know try to get you know uh, should we pass legislation? Should we re should we rewrite union contracts? What is it that we need to do to be able for off for chiefs who want to fire? to actually get them out of the department? Well, I think one of the first things you can do is, is um, give more transparency to the process. Um, much of, of what is done in hearing boards and um, disciplinary processes and that sort of thing uh, is, is all, in, in different states, and certainly my state, is protected information. And um, I wish, and, and, and some of the decisions are the final decision because believe it or not, I, I, as the police chief, do not have the final decision on discipline. I can make recommendations, but th they can appeal my decision, and ultimately there is a, um, a neutral, arbitra neutral arbitrator, um, who, a, a, uh, um, a labor umpire, who often is the final uh, person to, to decide whether a person, uh, dismissal is upheld or the person's reinstated. You will never know that person's name. They will never be held accountable, um, and they will and they will collect their three thousand dollars a day fee for hearing that um, hearing that appeal, and um, and and as long as the union likes their decisions, they'll continue to keep that gig at three thousand dollars a day to hear, hear those appeals. And as soon as the union does not like their decisions, they'll say, "Well, we're no longer using that neutral arbitrator." So, pretty dysfunctional system, in my view. If I get anything, I'm going to surprise a lot of people when I make this comment, because sometimes we talk about discipline and union comes into play. The union does not have to be an obstacle to reform. The union is not our enemy. In many cases, and I, and I, and I sincerely mean that, in many cases, a lot of the disciplinary process that exists or the things that we think may hinder us from finding that, getting rid of the bad officers are based on um, abuses by management years before. In other words, there was a point of view where they had another, most unions are created because of management abuse and they're there to protect the workers. So let's not treat police officers different than any other worker. They are human beings. They have working conditions. They have rights. We should protect that. Now, what we do together, if we're on board with that, that their job is, our job is to protect you, their job is to protect us from unreasonable management or abuse of power. I think we have evolved to the point, with, and I think you're right, with transparencies and systems, we're past those days, but that's why it's in existence and to argue and to bargain for the best interests of police officers. We need to find out where it is legitimately interfering with holding that person accountable because most cops don't want a dirty cop or a bad cop with them, let alone the system. And I think we would, if we can work together with the union to find out where those systems are flawed, is to find out where it's preventing the chief from holding somebody accountable that's where we should be able to work together and change it so that a person is, has, is subject to a fair investigation, a thorough investigation, the appeal process. But at some point, the officer's got to be held accountable. We've now built the system that goes to the far, I agree with the chief, so far that it's, it is very hard. And when you get that person back, it starts contributing to a culture of officers can act with impunity. And so we need to fix it. I think the chief's right about the system. I think we're going to have to do it in partnership with the union. I think you're going to have to take a look at the state laws to make sure they're not so excess that literally it would take an act of Congress to get rid of a, a bad cop. 
but at the same time that it provides and shields the officers from unreasonable working conditions or attacks. Um, we're asking them to do a lot as it is, and I think we owe them support, but that support should not be at the compromising of public safety or legitimacy. So there's a balancing act to be there, and I just think, and, I, and most chiefs are effective, like, you know, working around the country, have really realized that and work and try to partner with the union to the extent that they can and fight the battles that they need to fight. But I just don't think we have to deem them as enemies, which I, I, no one has done today, but I, I hear that a lot. But I think they're part of the solution because the system is not working with regards to discipline. And not only are people not getting, sometimes do they come back, we even have a national system back to that profession that if you get fired in East Palo Alto, um, it doesn't prevent you from getting hired in Montgomery County. The chief may prevent you, but the system does not. And so we don't really have a national certification or decertification process that says once you lose your medical license, you can't, you know, you can't operate anywhere in this country. But you got cops bouncing from city to city, state to state. And depending on the disciplinary process, I might, my hands may be tied because my, I might have been forced to sign a, through my attorney a non-disclosure agreement to get rid of this bad cop. So now he or she goes to the next jurisdiction, and I can't tell them don't hire that person because they're an idiot because I have this agreement, and then this person just bounces from place to place. And we're trying to work that out, but that's, I think that's one of the challenges. And I actually don't have an opinion on hiring back because I'm not a chief, but I would say if we're, if we're to that point, like we failed, the system's failed, if we're already to the point where we've got a cop that they're bouncing from agency to agency, um, and the chiefs mentioned a couple times about how disjointed we are with 18,000 different agencies across the United States. But to me, there's, there's got to be data in there that we could start looking at um, to determine our hiring practices when we bring people in, like why do people go sideways? I also think there's a lot of um, mental health issues over time with officers that we're not taking a really deep dive into as far as alcoholism or drug addiction or just PTSD and how it alters your brain. Um, it's something I'm actually very curious about is when we have officers that start making bad decisions, um, the same way somebody does when you have a brain that atrophies through dementia or Alzheimer's is the amount of trauma that we sustain on a daily or weekly basis, like what that does to our brains over time to where we start making bad decisions. Um, so those kind of things I think we should be looking at upfront rather than reactive of like, how do we fix it on the back end? And also systematically, we do need something across the United States. Excellent. Um, where I ran a little over, so we've got about nine minutes for uh, Q&A. Uh, please, uh, if you have a question, please make it in the form of a question. Identify yourself in any relevant affiliation you may have. And please, please, please keep it brief. Gentleman right here on the row. Yeah, I want to thank the panel. I think you guys did a wonderful job of highlighting a really important problem. Um, my name is Jeff Sedgwick. I'm the executive director of the Justice Research and Statistics Association, formerly head of the Bureau of Justice Statistics and assistant attorney general for the Office of Justice Programs, all of which, and $1.50 will get me a cup of coffee at Starbucks, as long as I don't go high-end. Um, oh, I want to... I love the conversation about research and data. And I want to tell you one of the biggest frustrations that I think a lot of us have that are concerned about policing. Sometime go and look at the data collections that the Bureau of Justice Statistics has on victimization or on corrections, jails, and then look what they have on policing. The policing collection is god-awful. Um, 
Then go and look at the amount of time that it, we have been committed to moving from summary data collection on crime statistics to incident-based data collections. We're not even close to there, and we've been at it for 18 years. We're promising now the FBI is going to move to it by 2021. Don't bet the ranch, okay? Why is it that we know so much more about corrections or we know so much more about victimization than we know about policing? What's the problem? We've got 18,000 law enforcement units in the United States. That is a wonderful data set to be able to do comparative policing studies. What strategies work in what types of communities? But we don't have the data. What do we need to do to get the data from police to allow us to do the kinds of research that will produce some knowledge what type of policing works in what type of community? And I also really, really like the conversation back and forth between the two of you because you know, one of the things you know about policing is policing in a suburban neighborhood is very different from policing in an inner city. What we often forget is policing in an inner city is very often not split racially. It's most crime in the United States is intraracial because it's intracommunal. So this whole narrative of cops hey, I think we got we got to cut it yeah. off. Uh, so well, how do we get the data? Like do, you know, um, you've highlighted the, the, the problem. Um, you didn't give it, I was waiting for the answer because I don't, <laughs> I don't have it. Yeah, um, one size does not fit all in terms of policing. Um, and it's what trying to get data from the NYPD, the largest local police department in the United States, and trying to get data from Andy of Mayberry, and I'm looking around, maybe half of you know that reference, what that reference means. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a, a real challenge. And the NIBR system, the National Incident-Based Reporting System, um, and my, many departments, including mine, have, have got it, put it in place. I think that'll help. But, um, you know, for a long time, police, it's like, we're too busy. We can't be keeping track of all the stuff you want us to keep track of. We're too busy doing police work. Well, hopefully the NIBR system will, will get us a, a forward, you know, move that ball forward a little bit. I think the greatest impediment to that is, for example, right now there's not an agency maybe outside the news outlet that can tell you how many actual officer-involved shootings there are in, in the United States, how many people are killed by the police. And the media put it out, and now they're adjusting the numbers saying they may have underreported. And I think the former FBI director said it best, that's crazy that he could ask how many shootings and not have an answer. Part of it is because we are decentralized. We, 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 the strength of the system is that it's decentralized with local control. And so, but somehow we're misinterpreting the federalism argument that national does not have to mean federal, right? So it's one thing to do federal data collection, even though I would like to have more investment in NIJ and others to do it, as much as national standards that will require us to operate certain ways, right? Best practices. And I think the more we embrace that at the, as a profession, the more then we'll see that we'll need it. Now, there's been, in my 35 plus years, there's been tremendous advancement as far as police and academia partnerships. I don't think there's a major city in this country that is not working with two or three universities on some project right now. 30 years ago, that was a bad word. You don't need a bunch of academic knuckleheads and pinheads to come into your department. Today, most of them, you won't, there's not a project where they maybe have more staff, a bunch of PhDs doing research. So I think we're primed for it, we're getting there, but because we're so decentralized, 
I don't know if we've seen it collectively, the value of that data. And at the local level, if I don't have a good relationship with my community, if my mandates aren't clear, that data could hurt me, to be very candid, right? When we collect racial profiling data, and I would like to do it because I like to see what's happening around the country within my agency, but if there's a disparity, then some attorney's gonna put out a calculator, give me a false benchmark, a denominator, and say I'm profiling. Then I gotta spend the next six months defending the department for this misinterpretation of data. So there's a little bit of trust part there too that the data can be very counterproductive if it's misused. So we gotta come together and find out that there's comfort in collecting data, that the community will support the data collection, take the results, learn from them, improve outcomes, and work together and not just everybody take it and spit off um, to their own agenda. Now, starting to work, we had the Open Data Initiative at the White House under the Obama administration where more and more departments were starting to post their open data online and start the idea that people can manipulate the way they want. I don't know what's gonna continue or not, but we, we do have to get into that mentality because there's very little research on the stuff that we're doing, which is very dangerous. I think it's gonna take pressure and education. I think a lot of it when it comes to statistics, um, data, and research, it's gonna be from the mayors and the city managers when you start to say, if I'm hiring a police chief, this is what I wanna see from my chiefs, and this is my expectations for you. And I don't think we have that yet. You know, the number one response is gonna be when I left the, before I left the administration, I did a convening with a bunch of police chiefs, progressive police chiefs, city attorneys, risk management pool operators, and, count, like, and corporate councils, if you will, city councils. Because one of the angles that we don't go at many, many times is to convince the city of why they should do certain things. The chief makes the argument, I need training, I need training, I need training, and first thing they're gonna cut on his budget is training. Let the risk management pool come in saying, hey, we have a lot of payouts, your deductible's going up, your premium's going up, you're spending millions of dollars, get that man some training. That's a different argument, and sometimes that's the convincing argument versus you know, the police department needs something else because from a city's point of view, you maybe already be 50 to 60% of the journal fund, and now you want another 2% or 3%, which means I may have to rob Peter to pay Paul, and Peter may have a bigger political stick at that time. All right. Right here on the end. Very, very quick. You've got like 20 seconds. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is just a follow-up to your question, uh, Jonathan, about kind of metrics. And uh, I think the issue that uh, um, I'm Richard Jerome, I'm the uh, deputy monitor in the NYPD stop and frisk case. And, and a, a big piece of it is the incentives that the department uh, kind of provides for the officers. And if, uh, as you say, basically officers are measured on how many arrests, how many stops, how many summons, uh, you know, you've got to get your numbers, your, your, your movers and parkers if you want to get your overtime, that's where they're going to go. You were talking, the, the, the panel was generally talking about how do you measure the police department in terms of community service and, and the, you know, uh, absence of justice and the rest. But really you've got to figure out what do you measure the individual officer on, particularly if you're talking about large police departments. So the question is, how do you put in place uh, a uh, performance measurement system that will actually look at things like problem solving or you know, community interaction uh, and other pieces other than just the proactive enforcement? Well, I think you sound like just like a performance evaluation. I think first you have to put, this is gonna sound funny, you, you gotta give value to that performance evaluation. And some departments that performance measures, like, like an annual evaluation or quarterly, carries a lot of weight. It may impact promotions, assignments, 
and therefore people would go towards whatever the, are, are identified that you're going to measure. So you can craft that in partnership with the unit to include those kind of measures, problem solving, analytical thinking, the ability to interact. Um, in some places, that's, it's, it's, it's a useless thing, and you can go into a department and find out maybe a person hasn't had an evaluation in five years. And so a lot of it would be is, that, is to bring back for, the, for organizations the value of a performance evaluation system and to craft it based on those things that you want done in the department so that people will gravitate to that, give it value so that getting a good evaluation has a, an incentive and a benefit. In other words, my career will be better if I can do these things. Cops will go where you point them to. Mm -hmm. If you tell me I got to make a lot of drug arrests to get to the that, that task force I want or that assignment or become a detective or to get on a motorcycle, then I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do a very good job because I want to achieve. If you tell me that i got to solve problems with the community, I'm going to do that as well. And whatever you tell me to value, I'm going to value. We're not to, everything within the framework of being legal, but I think you're right. So it's got to bring strength to that evaluation system. All right. Well, we are completely out of time. Uh, please thank the panel for their wonderful uh, conversation. <laughs> <laughs>